just a little note that there are one or two mild swear words in this episode, so proceed with caution. I'm listening to... Oh, no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I'm Warren Ellis from Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Dirty Three and soundtracks and stuff like that. And uh, you're listening to the Mojo Record Club with Andrew Mayo and John Mulvey. Is it Mulvey? Mulvey. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayo and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. A place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo editor John Mulvey. Hey Andrew. And Warren Ellis. Hey Andrew. Hey John. Hello gang. Warren has been playing music in collaboration and on his own for pretty much all his life, ever since childhood when he found an abandoned accordion at his local dump in Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. In 1992, he formed the thrilling, loose-limbed and often literally death-defying instrumental trio, The Dirty Three, with Mick Turner and Jim White. And since 1993, he has also been a close collaborator with Nick Cave in The Bad Seeds and Grinderman, but also as part of a duo, working on film soundtracks, most recently for Andrew Dominic's Blonde, and such intimate, powerful albums as 2021's Carnage and this year's Seven Psalms. He is also a soundtrack composer in his own right and is responsible for one of the great books on music, memory and loss, 2021's Nina Simone's Gum. And finally, last year, he and his wife Delphine helped establish the Ellis Park Wildlife Sanctuary in Sumatra, which specialises in caring for animals that cannot survive in the wild. Welcome, Warren. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. Now, the record you've brought in to talk about today is World Galaxy by Alice Coltrane, or rather, Alice Coltrane with Strings, released on Impulse Records in 1974. Before we start, let's hear a little bit of the opening track, Alice's cover of Roger and Hammerstein's My Favourite Things, which had previously been made famous in the jazz world by her late husband, John Coltrane, who'd covered it on his 1961 LP of the same name and returned to it as a live standard throughout his career until his death in 1967. And you'll also hear a voice popping up at the end of the track and throughout the show with the music credits, and that is this episode's producer, Makeda. Alice Coltrane, My Favourite Things, from Alice Coltrane with Strings on Wild Galaxy, released by Impulse Records in 1972. Yeah, it's ama amazing how that song evolved since his recording of it, his take of it. It really quickly kind of dissolved into something else. Um, so my, my introduction to Alice Coltrane was in fact this record. And, and it, it changed my life, literally. It was the first time that I'd ever heard strings used in such a way that was recognisable, but absolutely thrilling, chaotic, but all crystallined into this in, incredibly beautiful um, music. Um, and, and it was like the, the strings that I'd heard in my head, but I, I like, you know, when it got wild in classical music and stuff like that, like I didn't really know where it was going, but somehow she had it in some framework that was that was immediate and recognisable, but also totally off the planet. Um, 
So finding this record w was, um, I guess, life-changing for me. I, I also had, had discovered um, the record John Coltrane and Ollis Coltrane around the same time, the, the one with Leo on it and the, the Earth and Infinity. Yeah. Those posthumous records that were really looked down on at the mm. time. But they were my, my kind of the records that I had and they were the records that I listened to over and over and over and over again. The, I mean, jazz producer Ed Michelle talking about this album, he says the amazing thing was that she was teaching these studio string players how to play free. Right. And that's kind of one of the things about it is like you're hear as you say, you're hearing strings, but not like any strings that you've heard before. No, it's like she like she's just sort of opened the piano up and dumped it all on the ground and said, play this. Yeah. And and somehow it's contained. Um, I mean, I, I have no idea how they did this recording. I've never never looked into how it was done or, or, or whatever. I just know that um, at the time I heard it, it was what I needed to hear. I've I've listened to her all my life, and and when I did have money, once I I could go back and buy records and discovered those beautiful Krishna albums, um, Transfiguration, the live album, um, all it did was solidify the the feeling that I had about her. I mean, she's haunted me all my creative life. Every time I go in the studio, I've tried to honour her in some way. Um, so on the Dirty Three record, you have Alice Waiting, that's a dedication to her. Carnage, the last record, there's a lot of referencing to her. Ghostine as well. One of the Grindaman albums has an Alice Yeah, there's track. Electric Alice on that, yeah. which was, you know, come come from the, the that sort of amazing organ sound that yeah. she has. The, the way that I, I got into Alice Coltrane was via John Coltrane. Um, and a, a mate of mine who... I, eventually played the first band I ever played in called the Bashed Yabbies, which was a comedy act. I played banjo and I was dressed in a McDonald's outfit and I had a rubber <laughs> chicken sticking out of the fly of my trousers. Uh, it, was, it was totally like kind of, you know, we were cancelable and everything. And we did this sort of, I, I, I was trying to play a banjo and, and um, he sat me down one night and he goes, listen to this. And he, he put on a track and absolutely blew my mind like I was hallucinating and I was stone cold sober and I said what's that and he goes that's John Coltrane that was a vigil from Kuluse Mama and listening to it I believed and I still believe that I was hearing the voice of God and John Coltrane had that impact yeah. on me from the moment I heard him. Something incredibly humbling about um, John Coltrane um, I've and his legacy. I've always been interested with you as a musician and as someone who works in the studio. When I listened, I was listening to um, World Galaxy, and part of me is thinking, how are those sounds being made? There's something yeah. about the quality of that record. That the way that stuff just rips into the channel, like you hear that yeah. organ come in, and it's like lightning or something coming. I mean, I've tried to do that on... That's as a reference for me for a lot of recordings like that that I've worked on is how how can you get that sensation? It's almost like three D music or something. Yeah. It's three dimensional. The way things just rip in and out of channels and stuff like that. 
But it's also it's also how the um, the strings feel, even even though they're sc- clearly scored, I assume because they're playing as a section. It's a, it yeah. complements the improvised nature yes. of, the, of, yeah. the, of the solo. I think Al- Alice scored the strings as well. So kind of yeah, sing, I think sure, wrote, but yeah. but no, it's, well, yes. it's, it's, it's still so how it's, how it sits there because yeah. because the organ playing is so free on that. Yeah, record. absolutely. And there's, I mean, maybe we should we should maybe play a little bit of her version of um, Love Supreme. Cause it's a really, I mean, that is raw, heavy, free jazz. Because I mean, it has got a really nasty kind of almost sort of sci-fi funk groove. But at the same time, you hear these vocals from her, her guru and her yeah. yoga master Swami Sachidananda. You know, so should we play a little bit of a Love Supreme? business. Love knows no bargain. Love never expects anything in return. Love knows only giving, giving and giving, without even waiting for a thank you. Alice Coltrane, A Love Supreme, from Alice Coltrane with Strings on World Galaxy, released by Impulse Records in 1972. All the people around me were listening mainly to you know, rock and roll, what what was around at the time. Like, I, I, I liked the modern modern jazz that, that was going on because there was something very free about it. Mm. Oh, so around that time as well, uh, I'll, I'll leave the names of the musicians out of it. They told me they were, um, they'd made, they were kind of post-rock band in London and they'd made what they perceived as a spiritual, uh, as a spiritual jazz influence record. And they did it by recording the album, then playing the album through in the studio with all the sound turned down so they couldn't actually hear the album and just getting a big box of shakers and just going like that for 40 minutes randomly over the top of it and then they put it back up again and it was kind of voila spiritual jazz spiritual jazz yeah I, i was kind of on my own really listening to this music and then weirdly i met bobby gillespie um i was I was a speed dealer back in the early 90s and I met Bob at a, at a, at a, uh, a festival we were playing at. And then he gave me his number and I looked him up when I got to London in 95. And uh, we were talking about music and I said, oh, you know, um, how do you make these records that you make? And he, he whipped out an Alice Coltrane record and he goes, check this drum beat. And I went, fuck, do you know Alice Coltrane? And he's like, yeah, how's this? This could have been recorded like today. And it was this version of Love Supreme. Yeah. And he's just sitting there going like this. <laughs> and then he, go, he goes like, you know, so I'll get this and I'll say, hey, can't we put this over the top of it, you know? And I'd never heard people talk about music like that. And yeah. that, that was amazing for me to, to see Bob talk about it in such a way. And also to, to know that other people were listening to her because she was very marginal back in, in those days, um, you know, and, and maligned, I guess, by the sort of jazz world. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I, I guess it makes sense that the rock people got into her in a way because there's something familiar about it. Absolutely. There was I, something around that time where probably a sort of mid-90s, where quite often you'd go out to clubs, not not dance clubs, but, you know, sort of gigs and then after shows and that kind of thing. And P- DJs would play Journey and Sachidananda right. a lot in the middle of their sets, the title track, yeah. not the whole album. Yeah. And and it kind of fitted a certain psychedelic Well, yeah. the, the, mood, it's, it's you know? the thing, actually, that you, you saw a lot of these people who went through the electric period, like Miles and that, the, the musicians didn't want to sit on the thing because they had to keep moving around and, you know, like, Bitches Brew gets on a groove and does stuff and On the Corner does. 
But I was Coltrane seemingly like kind of was hooked into pop music as well yeah. for yeah. some reason and had and came in with this kind of incredibly kind of wide vision. And so I think like when you talk about journey into Saturnia and things like that, they're on a groove and they sit yeah. there and they're not a, like like the the Huntington Ashram Monastery, that yeah. one. Do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. <laughs> like that. You just no, made, it's made just, it sound like Deep Purple. It's, well, yeah. it is like yeah. Deep Purple. Yeah. It, it's totally, you know, yeah. it's really kind of cool and groovy and yeah. stuff. And they're really happy to let the groove kind of take its place, you know, on, on these records. And, and it's not so much about chops and, yeah. and, and all this stuff and going off. This sort of stuff happens, there's room for it. And I think it's what's amazing about that, that, that about her, um, how she could channel this into sometimes like into a three and a half minute pop song yeah absolutely um, you know phenomenal um i mean but just even listening to that the way in which it kind of breaks those ideas of what you think is kind of accepted so you've got the holy voice yeah you know sp speaking these kind of sacred words and at the same time you've got going into this incredibly kind of you know nasty kind of funk groove yeah well, also you, you sort of have to see it in the context of her life she'd lost john coltrane and yeah. lost the son as mm, well yeah. so she'd had these two major traumas in her life and her way was to construct an ashram to yeah. construct a monastery and and to, to to sing to god um you know which is phenomenal yeah uh, um and i didn't realize that at the time but i, I think that this comes through in the music, that yeah. it's clearly spiritual devotional music of the highest order. Yeah. Um, it's It feels like as close to God as you can get. Yeah. And it always felt like that. Somebody said to me one time in an interview, like, they have the Church of John Coltrane, why don't we have the Church of Alice Coltrane? And I said, there is one. Anybody that listens to her, yeah. we gather in her church. And it's a kind of, it's a global cosmic church that's happening. Because anybody that enters into her music enters into her church. Mm. I, I actually tried to, to buy her ashram. Um, with the, the people from Loakabop who put out that last record of hers, they told me it was for sale and I, I, I looked into it and it was beyond my means. So I started telephoning around asking if anyone wanted to pitch in and everyone had problems with taxes and stuff <laughs> like this. And, and then, weirdly, I let, sort of let go of it and then just after we finished Ghost Dean recording that record, the fires went through and just burnt the whole thing to the ground and yeah. it was gone for good. But um, luckily a harp was saved. Um, yeah. That wasn't there. Um, but I, 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 at the time, wanted to try and preserve that place yeah. um, if it was at all possible. We've got a really nice clip of Alice talking about why she chose the harp as an instrument to play. And I don't know if we'll get to hear a little bit of that. Maybe it's the way, it's because I know uh, the instrument is, is of uh, Egyptian origin. But uh, when I play it, I don't know, maybe the flowingness of it or the, the way it's so harmonically and uh, melodically set, so different from uh, the piano, uh, for example. It makes me recall Egypt, ancient Egypt, it makes me seem to remember that, that, that I have a past or a history there somewhere. Alice Coltrane talking about her heart from Black Journal 26, Alice Coltrane documentary, directed by St. Clair Bourne in 1970. I had 
two sort of connections with 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 this record later on when um first of all when um Dirty Three curated All Tomorrow's Parties. I'd seen Alice Coltrane live in Paris, which is something I never thought I would see in my life. And and, and I had a concert to play the next day, and I cancelled the ticket, and I uh, and uh, I bought a ticket to see her. And and I, I didn't really care what it was like the concert. I just to be in a room with her was yeah, enough yeah. for me. Um, and. The amazing thing was the concert was beyond what I could have imagined. Yeah. Like she had Jack Dejonet on drums and she had Ravi Coltrane and all her children were there and they came out with her. She was in a robe. She looked amazing. They all held her hands. They walked out and they sat at her organ that they brought in from the ashram and then they all sat on either side of her on this really big seat and they just went into the stuff that you wanted to hear. I mean, it was mind-blowing. And then at the end of the show, and it was, it was in a quite a big room in Paris and we were all just sitting on the floor and it was really tripped out and it was it was so amazing she came out for the encore and she just said we're going to play a song that John left for us to learn and then they launched into a love supreme uh -huh. and the whole place just rushed to the front of the stage and it was in the early days of of telephones with cameras so everyone had their little Nokia's up <laughs> the, the security guards were all up there like taking photos and stuff yeah. like this and it was incredibly kind of um, moving because you realise that that song was had, had moved into a different lexicon. You know, it was seen as like a kind of seen as seen as like a, 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 some sort of you know pop song or, or, or pop song or something. Sorry, that was my phone. I've turned it off now. And, and then when when uh, few. 2007 when we were or 2008 when we were curating um, All Tomorrow's Parties I wanted to get Alice Coltrane on she was on my, the top of my list and, and with Barry Hogan um, we reached out to her people and her son Ravi Coltrane wrote back and, and said mum really wants to do this which I couldn't believe um, and then we had her booked in to play and uh a month later, we got an email saying, look, mum's not well, she has to cancel. And then, sadly, she, she, she left, left the earth. And not long after that, then, uh, then Leroy Jenkins, who's the violin player uh, on, on Love Supreme, he contacted me through a friend of his, um, a mutual friend, Alexandre, who's, who's a music, musicologist in Paris and works a lot with jazz, the, you know, William S. Parker, all these people. Um, he reached out to me and he said, you know, would I be interested in doing a collaboration, which was totally mind-blowing for me. And I had a few email exchanges with, with Leroy Jenkins, which was just so kind of amazing for me. And he sent me what he'd been working on and stuff like that. And then when I was sort of went to do it, he sadly passed away as well. So, but I guess that's just how it was meant to be, yeah. you know. There's one, th one thing when you're talking about that Alice concert... It reminds me in some ways of the way you write about the Nina Simone concert and how these shows have become sacred events for you in a way. Is well, that something yeah, that happens to you with I think I think gigs? it happens to, to, to a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, music has that incredible power, uh, the act of communion that, that takes place. And that can be something that happens just sitting at home. You have these moments. Mu music... We don't need to understand it. It speaks to us emotionally and, and we can have this communion with it on our own and 
I was definitely one of these people who just sat with headphones on and listened to records all the time. I, I, I just listened to music all the time. Um, you know, I didn't have an I didn't have an iPhone or anything like that. But so you had to sit down with a cassette or or, or the vinyl. But I, any moment I had, that's what I did. Yeah. Um, and and for me, it, 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 music has always helped me kind of define my place in the world. I have a hard time dealing with the world a lot of the times and, and, and interactions with people. But music somehow centred me um, listening to it. So it, it served a, a, quite a, a few different purposes, I, I think, for me throughout my life. And I would get involved with these artists that, that you maybe are never going to even see, you know, but something happens and Nina Simone was like that too, you know, the, the transformation that that we witnessed at, at that concert was life-changing. Um, not only because of who she was and what she'd done, but what she did that night, um, to see somebody who was at the end of their life rise above their physical problems, yeah. um, mental problems, and this genius that had defined her all her life was there. And it was probably more moving than seeing her back in the 60s, mm. I think. You know, I remember seeing The Killer playing Paris, you know, like a show that just was unbelievable, yeah. you know, and he could barely get on the piano. Yeah. He was trying to get his leg up and the roadies came out and they're lifting his foot <laughs> up to get it on there. And it was one of the greatest rock and roll shows I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. You know, the power went down. He just kind of walked to the front of the stage. I mean, it was phenomenal. Um, you know, and I remember seeing Lou Reed do Berlin um, when, he, when, when he played that record. And watching his sort of vindication and watching him start crying, you know, playing, yeah. playing Caroline Says, he just sort of put his hand down and wiped his, wiped his eye and then turned away from the audience. Um, they're, they're the shows that I really remember. Because yeah. um, you feel like they're playing for you yeah. uh, because you've, you've been so intimate with them um, over the years. And it's, the, you know, the amazing thing, I think, that... Music is powerful stuff. Incredible, incredible stuff. And the thing that you, the thing that you said about that we have the records as the, the churches, you know, yeah. so the, the the place where we can go and kind of, in a way, kind of join in communion or pay our respects. Well, yeah. you know, for me, and I say this totally seriously, you know, Alice Coltrane is the holiest of the holiest, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I. Like I said, you know, I, I try to honour her in some way um, every time I go in the studio. I think about the impact that she's had on me. And I think about, I don't even know what she was trying to do, but what I think she was trying to do. Um, f for me, it's the holiest music of, of the highest yeah. order. Fantastic. I think that brings us to the point that we've been skirting around a little bit about World Galaxy and that for a long time it was quite a marginalised record yeah. in, in general critical yeah. discourse. Well, it's, yeah. it's really odd. There's, um, the, the main sort of book that's been written on Alice Coltrane's music is, is Franja Berkman's um, book Monuments Eternal. And she describes, um, she says of World Galaxy about it's kind of the way in which it brings together the strings and dissonant free improvisation. She says it's the kind of thing that would work in small jazz ensembles, but is a rather heavy-handed device for a full-string section. And it's it's odd that even in kind of when she's accepted, there are still these records that she makes or these sounds that she makes that people 
that still don't fit, that still, still not, feel it, 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 not part of the canon. It's not, it, it disproves the orthodoxy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's, a be- there's also there's a beautiful playfulness about her too, you yeah. know, that, that is often overlooked or maybe it actually worked against her, I don't, I don't really know, but... I know when I met Hal Wilner, Hal Wilner was responsible for presenting some of these records to the label and he'd go like, here it is, and he'd put it on and they go, right, what are we meant to do with this? <laughs> you know, because it wasn't jazz enough in those days and, and it wasn't, I, I think it was a really hard sell, which is why I found her in the first place, exactly. because yeah, that yeah. would come out and then it would just go straight into the $2 bin yeah. and then I'd, it'd be waiting for me. You know, and I've I've spoken to a lot of people, and that was a similar yeah. case. I mean, I couldn't afford. I had to be really kind of um, committed to buy a, a full price record in yeah. those days. Um, you know, and it wasn't at your fingertips on Spotify. You couldn't just listen to anything and everything, yeah. which is you know a wonderful thing. Um, you know, I remember hearing about Lawrence of Newark, and now I waited oh. years to hear that record. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when I did, you know, like I mean, it was beyond what I thought, but it built up so much in my head, yeah. you know, in those days, like someone had told me about it, it was this and that, and there's only a few hundred copies and da-da-da-da-da, like that. You know, some, sometimes it sort of let your imagination just run riot. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's rare, isn't it, that you will listen to a record and it meets all those demands and all, yeah. the, all, all those aspects of what you'd imagined it to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Look, you there was a you mentioned um, Lou Reed, and uh, kind of which brings us nicely to new records out this week. Um, John, I'll leave. I'll move over to you. Yeah, it's. Um, I wanted to talk about. It. It's not actually out this week. I think it's not out for a week or two. It's oh, got okay, pushed right. back slightly. Um, right. Just uh, in case anyone's dashing to Spotify or <laughs> whatever to try and hear but it. They, now, we, don't, but we don't. We don't. We don't know when they're listening to the. We podcast don't know. Do no. We? Well, it's, <laughs> it's uh, the. It's the wonder yeah. of the modern world. Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? It's evergreen content. Yeah. I believe. Yes. Um, yeah, it, there's a new record by Lou Reed coming out. It's got technically new, um, and it's never been released before. It's called Words and Music, May 1965, and it's a set of demos that finds Lou tackling the early Velvet Underground songbook in the style of a Greenwich Village folk singer. I'm always fascinated by these archival projects when they show how songs we know so well evolve through surprisingly different treatments, and Words and Music certainly does that. A couple of months ago, Laurie Anderson told Mojo that Hearing the tape is like coming across some folkways recording from the 1930s. It's that ancient. It has an eerie, rickety sound that suggests it was recorded in some old road house. I mean, heroin is a folk song. People are going to be shocked. Maybe we can play heroin now and see what you think. I'm gonna try for the kingdom if I can Cause you know it makes me feel that I'm a man Wanna put the spike into then you know that things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing from my run And I feel like Jesus' son And I guess that I just don't know And I guess that I Lou Reed, Heroin, from Lou Reed Words and Music in May 1965, released by Light in the Attic in 2022. It's almost like a Dylan talking blues, isn't it? It's, it's, it's amazing to hear where these songs have come from and where they go. Like, you, if you hear a version of, of that, you know, from later on in his life, where they, they take that uh, take that song as taken, how it continues to evolve, it's like a Love Supreme, like yeah. we're talking about yeah. with that, where you hear where that's come from. If you know, you know, my favourite things from 
what was it? Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. They said what, my fair lady. It no, it's. Um, hang on. No, it's the sound of music. I was wrong. It's the sound of music. Um, to hear where these songs go and where they go is because of the people involved in them. But it's it's always amazing to hear these earlier versions. It, it's always encouraging because I, I know this from myself working in the studio. I know where songs can go within the context of a short period of time from the time that they just seemingly appear uh, and then where they go when you record it and then live where it goes after that is another another story in itself. And you see songs that can, some songs seem to continually evolve. Um, you know, I've seen this over 30, 30 odd years I've been doing this. It's really kind of great to hear, hear that. I, w I was sent, uh, Light in the Attic sent me the Flexi single yeah, yeah. Um, of that. And it totally blew my mind to hear that. Because um, it's a song I must have listened to, I can't tell you how many, I mean, it's the greatest song ever written about heroin ever. Yeah. It continues to be, um, and you know I've listened to so many different versions of it. But to hear that, like where it come, came from, is it, phenomenal. It kind of shows you also kind of how music changes in such a small period of time between when he puts that on tape to when you know you hear it. Well, I think that was a, that was a period of radical acceleration in, yeah. in music for yeah. for a lot of artists, wasn't it? Absolutely. But not least for him. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff on the album where it's kind of like a hootenanny, him yeah. and Kale. It's mm. it's quite rowdy, you yeah. know. It's like some of the songs on there. I mean, that one's a bit more reflective, and it has it has maybe the menace that we know <laughs> is inherent in that song yeah. in a way that maybe some of the other performances on those demos don't. Yeah. But one of the things I think we should talk about is that these versions all come from a reel-to-reel -reel tape that was in an envelope behind Lou Reed's desk in his office. He'd actually posted the envelope to himself in May 1965 <laughs> as a way of asserting his copyright and had never unsealed it. Wow. So it was only opened after his Amazing. death. Incredible. I mean, I, I guess one question I wanted to ask you about it, Warren, is do you think the envelope should have been opened after his death? Well, that's, and the, the, music that's the question. There's a reason he probably didn't open it. I mean, um, it, I guess that's the question that, that looms over a lot of these things. Like, I remember when I, when I bought all those Miles Davis things that they were just putting out the, all the, the big on the bitches brew box yeah and the, the on the corner one was 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 great but yeah. in a silent way destroyed this thing about a record that it was made in a certain way and yeah, then the, you the heard TL all the outtakes yeah. and then you're like the genius of that record um was what they arrived at and i, I wonder about this unpicking of things sometimes yeah. mm -hmm. um i mean definitely you know for me to hear hear that version of that song really moves me and it does something um now, whether it should be out there, I don't know. I mean, I'm happy it's out there. Um, I wonder sometimes, you know, about this stuff. There's a reason why you arrive at a certain point. I mean, there's lots of stuff I wouldn't like to see at the light of day. So how did you feel when, um, when you guys put out the B-Sides and Rarities compilation? So, for instance, like um, that version of Waiting For You with the Canning Factory well, rhythm you know, that was, like that. that was all. that was all um, clearly like, you know, it was we looked over it, you know, it was yeah. followed through and then, you know, considered to be, like, worth putting out. I mean, we had a say in that. Now, you know, if I wasn't around and somebody found 
what it was and put it out, I'd be kind of mortified because you right. know it required work and stuff like that. Just from, from talking, if you talk about that instance, yeah. I'd be mortified knowing that that some of that stuff. I mean, you know, it's funny and all that stuff. Some of it's you know we have, we're having a good time in there, and and but there's some stuff that just doesn't need to be out there. It's you you, you put you're hoping that you put stuff out that kind of adds adds weight to the 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 to the catalog rather than i mean i mean you know i don't know it's great to hear that something can come from such a sort of banal idea as as well you know there's something you know and i think i think that when you're working in any creative medium you know a, a, a lot of things come from seemingly nothing sometimes um but yeah it's, it's i don't know the answer really that kind of thing, it flatters the consumer as well, doesn't it, a lot of the time? Because it's basically saying to the consumer, you're like a curator, a museum curator yeah, exactly, or something. Yeah. You've got, now you have the master tapes. You yeah. can go and listen to the well, isolated vocal yeah, it, or the backing track. It, it's like, are you... It, 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 it feels like it works on a different level to me than playing the actual record does. Yeah. It feels like it plays to my interests as a historian yeah. rather than someone who's who's listening to music in more of an yeah, a, in but, more of a straightforward uh, aesthetic it, it, way. It's, it's recognizing that a lot of people who still buy, you know, hard media is still buy CDs and vinyls and vinyls. I said there, sorry everyone, <laughs> and vinyl. Oh, young people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> see themselves in that role now yeah. because you know they see that they are, they are curating a collection and they are kind of you well know, you find stopping. a path through musical history yeah. and there are a lot of options that you can take on yeah that. but uh, you know i mean at the same time i'm incredibly grateful that they have continued to find karen dalton recordings right yes green yeah. green rocky road those live recordings I love them more than the studio records. Yeah. There's something incredibly real about them, yeah. and she's singing naturally, and we actually really feel her um, more than that. And and you know, my son's uh, into Jonathan Richmond, my Jackson, my my youngest son. Well, he's 20 now. He's not so young, but his favourite version of Hospital is from a, some live bootleg in you know 1988 or something like that. And <laughs> I'm like, oh, have you heard the original? And he's like, yeah, no, I like this one, you know. So I mean, you know, whatever it takes, but I guess in a way. What you do you know. think, uh, Karen Dalton and those live recordings? So you really get a sense of the room and the space in the room yeah. and the way her voice resonates yeah. in yeah. what I suspect was often quite empty spaces well, as also, well. Well, yeah, but you also feel like she actually likes singing what she's singing, yeah. you know, and yeah. it feels like there was a, a push on her in those records to do certain standards mm. and things like that, you know, to to satisfy the record label's demands. But then on those records, she's really singing the songs that she loves. Yeah. And, and I think that there are... I mean, I've listened to them. I mean, before they came out, I used to listen to the other two records. I had cassettes of them from Mick. But I... Once I did heard these new records i mean i listen to them all the time yeah. uh they're the ones I, I i constantly go back to when i when i want to hear and like 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 also i remember um hearing pearl the outtakes of pearl and i don't know if they put the right versions on um like my baby and 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 um cry baby um it seems like the the alternate takes were, sounded better to me. It's the whole argument behind the Dylan bootlegs as well, isn't it? There's, well, there's, you know, yeah, they're amazing, yeah. those things, yeah. you know. Like, yeah. they, 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 I mean, they're amazing. 
those. I mean, he he he. But he's clearly kind of overseeing that. Yeah. Or someone is, you know, which is a different thing to the label going. Look, we've got all these yeah, takes absolutely. and outtakes. Hey, let's chuck them out. You know, like. But, so, but you know, but you know, the idea that Dylan fans were always convinced that he was putting out the wrong versions. Yeah. As, you know, especially yeah. during like the eighties and yeah. It's always a, it, I remember interviewing Jim O'Rourke about 20, 25 years ago, and he was talking about the sort of the horror he had of live performing in a conventional way because he never liked repeating, right. doing the same, doing the same thing twice, even yeah. if it meant performing a song. And sometimes I think listening to those, those bootlegs of Dylan, especially, and that kind of almost neurotic, neurotic pathological desire to try and f- invent different ways of moving yeah. through a song. Yeah at such speed and it's kind of I don't think he has any concrete or my hunch is he has no concrete idea of what is the kind of the the key version of any of his songs no, it's just I no, I think whatever in the moment well, yeah, you, he puts you, it you on have an to, album you have to commit to something and then you say like okay well this is the version that we're putting out you know and, and you do Mar- Marty Casey from the Bad Seeds yeah. he goes through all that stuff and he he's always like hey have you heard this version yeah. this this version of that like he goes through all that he he he, he loves that and, and he always plays you something that you know is really amazing uh, another version yeah. of a dylan song um just going back to lou reed did you ever meet him uh i met him um i met him at, uh, uh when he did metal machine music um briefly but he was quite um sick at that stage and then um he came in the studio when when Nick and I were doing Lawless, which was a, yeah. a bootlegging movie, and we had um, Ralph Stanley sing a version of White Light, White Heat, which was hell. Actually, hell, hell went up to Nashville, <laughs> and and you know, like it was one of the one of Hell's crowning achievements. You know, I was on a Zoom chat. Me and Nick were on on a what? No, it was like iChat or something in the early days of that, and we had Ralph Stanley and Hell Wilner, and Hell's just going like. You won't believe what's going on in here, like this. And he's just got his hand, like he goes, "It's off the planet, like this." And he's hiding around the corner, and, and we we get out, we get out into the room, and there's Ralph Stanley looking really kind of like pissed off. And uh, they send us these versions of White Light, White Heat. Um, sure enough, the Beef Heart song and. Um, Link Ray's Fire and Brimstone. Oh yeah. Oh, and we we'd recorded all these like raggedy versions and and sort of gave him the key and stuff like this and wanted him to sort of just sing them the same tempo and the same key and then we were going to drop them on. But um when we got them back like like a uh, white light white heat was a waltz and and um <laughs> totally different key and I remember I was going like it's really great your version. Um is there any way that you can do a bit like like that? And he's just looking at me like this, you know, and his guitar player just comes on and he goes, Ralph, don't sing in D. Like that. <laughs> and we're like, right, Nick is jumping around in the room like this. And But the amazing thing was that we were, we actually got these incredibly beautiful recordings of these songs yeah. and Hal facilitated that like no one had ever got Ralph Stanley to sing outside of his wheelhouse yeah. Hal went up Hal was amazing like that Hal, Hal was such a one-off like he, he's, he was such a beautiful guy and, and and amazing you know he and and he he so he was working on that phenomenal record Lulu he was yeah. producing that you know and, and him and Lou Reed were in in they just recorded as it turned out junior dad and and lou was flying back to new york he came in the studio because hal wanted him to hear 
these versions uh, and White Light, White Heat, basically. And um, so he came in the studio then and, and um, I met him at that point there, which was just amazing because he was, he was shuff he shuffled in, which really shocked me, you know, how, how, and then he was really feisty just sitting there and that, and then we put it on and he just, as soon as he heard the opening of, of, of the version of the song, he just went unbelievable like that and just sat there listening and then you could see this tear just build up in his eye like that and he's just going unbelievable like that and when it got to the end he just said 40 years later Ralph Stanley taught me how to sing white light white heat oh. like that and then and then I said and then I said oh, do you want to hear the other tracks that he did and he's like yes and I had it on my laptop and I said oh this is uh this is a Fire and Brimstone by Link Ray, and he just goes, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and I played that, and, and, uh, and, then, and then the next day, Hell sat me down, he goes, check this out, and he stuck his headphones on my head and played me Junior Dad, and I could not believe it, that track off that record. Yeah. And that's what they just recorded. So he'd come from doing that, sat in the studio, and, and then, and according to Hell, missed the plane for the first time in his life because they were driving back. They stuck Junior Dad on in the car and he's like, pull the car over. And they sat there and I think his father had just passed away and he sat there and had a real moment with it and missed his plane and it had never happened before. So, yeah, I have just that one story. Incredible. Uh, Pretty good story. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. I'm Warren Ellis and uh, you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. And you could do a lot worse than this, believe me, with the greatest podcasters on the planet. Listen up. If you've got to subscribe, dig into your pockets. And if, if, you, if you won't, then send the money to my bloody park in Sumatra. Right. My new record um, that's out this week, next week, um, is by the Chicago-based deep drone trio Bitchin' Bajas. It's called... Um, I'm going to pause and see if I can get this right. But just the latest... Oh, I think it might be Bahasilators. Bahasilators, yeah. Come on, yeah. Man. Bitching, but, right, okay. Google right. Translate. Bahasilators on Drag City. Um, Bitching Bahas are Cooper Crane, Rob Fry, and Dan Quinn Livin. They've been making music since 2010, working with the likes of Natural Information Society and Bonnie Prince Billy. I'd imagine that they're also big fans of Alice Coltrane because they're going for that loose, live-sounding, blissed-out, transcendental groove. I saw them live recently playing their set of Sun Ra interpretations, Switched on Ra, and it never felt like cold-faced replication. There was a real warmth and positivity to their performance, and I think that all runs through the new LP. We should maybe hear a little bit of the um, opening track, Amorpha, which, as they used to say on 70s FM radio, really needs to be he heard on the headphones in your conversation pit to fully get the, the benefit of its kind of ascending percussive beauty. from Bajasilators, released by Drag City in 2022.
One of my favourite bands, Andrew, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things I l really love about Bitchin' Bajas, and we're going to I always wanted it to be Bitchin' Bajas, I must it's like say. A, it's, like a, it's, a bar, it's a Baja buggy, I think, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And I always think that it's obviously a phrase from someone looking at a Baja buggy and thinking, what an excellent Baja yeah. buggy that is. Well, anyway, one of my least favourite things about Bitchin' Bajas is their name. Well, but, funnily but, enough, <laughs> that's their least favourite thing about the group as well, because I, I, when I interviewed Cooper, he, he basically said, look, if I'd have thought that the band were going to last this long, I clearly wouldn't have called them Bitchin' Bajas. <laughs> this was like a side yeah. project to goof around in my yeah. bedroom to. Yeah, but but um, anyway, one of the things I do really love about them is is that they, they're making this new age cosmische spiritual music, but they have a slightly wry, playful approach to it, while hence the name, I guess, while at the same time being deeply earnest and committed to making it. It's like they have, um, it com comes back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier about spiritual music and, and you know, seeing, seeing or hearing God when you hear Alice Coltrane. It's kind of like, I think, some spiritual jazz and spiritual music is, ve is very kind of fashionable kind of tagging for things, I think. And sometimes, especially at the moment, yeah. Especially at the moment. And I think sometimes people do it in quite a, <clears throat> an ersatz and, and quite shallow way. Or, or they it do it in an that, overly mystical That, that period when Elders Coltrane, you know, when, when you had something like the Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, like yeah. the whole cosmic thing they were on about it, it wasn't like a genre. It was like, you know, they were trying to get somewhere with, with the music. Um, yeah. It wasn't something you could go like, oh, let's make a record like that. Um, but I suppose one of the risks of doing it, if you don't have a faith, is that you're appropriating the idea of a belief. And, and, and expressing music in it. Whereas I think they're very good at, at treading a fine line between it and understanding that actually that idea can have transcendental consequences well, when mean, you're listening to it. One of the best um, examples of that is the album that they did with Bonnie Prince Billy, which was Will Oldham reading out um, fortune cookie mottos. Oh, right. As, you know, as if they were... And often they worked as these kind of messages for life you know mm -hmm. but they were playing it with this kind of very sort of restful spiritual music and there's this you were caught between thinking is there a sincerity there or are they or is there a kind of playfulness there you know how real are we meant to take this record but it the end result is that it it had an incredibly powerful and restful, restful effect. You can tell you, I think the correct answer is both. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. that actually it works on whichever level you're you're willing to accept it. At yeah, that which point. I think which I think defines what the group are about. Really, you, yeah, you exactly. can take it on both levels. Yeah, are they a, a group that you've heard before or familiar with? Yeah, I, no, I, I'm not really great at keeping up. Like Did it's not my job. And, and in a way, um, it's. I've, I've, I mean, you know, I listen to, to music a lot still, but, but I mean, I, you know, this tour, I've just been listening to the symphonies of Beethoven over and over. Like, they go for five and a half hours. Yeah. So you can do a whole listen, and it's amazing because you just sort of hear this life yeah. in those symphonies. Like, it, I'd never done that before, and it, it's extraordinary to hear where he went um, and that you can do that. You yeah. know, it's amazing, but... I, I, I'm still digging through old stuff that I really like when I want to listen to music. Um, I probably should listen to more new things, but I just don't get around to it. What other stuff are your kids into at the moment? Oh, <laughs> my my oldest son loves Nirvana. Yeah, like that's the. It's amazing how they've managed to just 
go through every generation, you know, since Nevermind came out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, they, they listen to Kanye and I, I listen to Kanye. I'll always listen to what Kanye puts out. Yeah. Um, I'll have a listen to that. I like Twigs as well, uh, FKA Twigs. I really love what she does. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I actually have to be pointed towards things. Like, and I never <laughs> used to. You know? yeah. Like, I mean, I used to just find things and stuff like that. And, and I guess there's just so much these days. Um, that's why you guys are in the industry. <laughs> What is your next project, Warren? Um, well, I, I'm, I've got a few things uh, that are coming out that have been... They're completed, like uh, the soundtrack for Blonde. Um, I've just sequenced that and, and got the master to that today. So hopefully that we've, we're done with that. And then um, I have... Um, I just did another... There's another score that Nick and I did for a, a Netflix series, Monster, that... Um, will come out at some at the end of this month but then I don't have um, well I have I have a tour coming up yeah. of Australia with Nick in the, the formation that we, we did the tour of the UK with and I have my book is coming out in a few different languages and I, I want to sort of oversee some of those um, and then I and then I have some um, uh, potential film scores coming up um, yeah, the, the, and 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 going to uh, we're making a film about the park, so oh, about Alice Park, yeah. So that's kind of all coming together at the moment. But I'll be going over there to film. I think March or April, if it all falls into place. That's the first time I'll have been there. So I'm I'm going wow. over there to meet the people, meet Femke and and the team uh, volunteers that work there, and and yeah, it's, you know, which is rather surreal for me because I'm a I know what's been going on and, you know, it's been a big part of my life uh, since since we launched it. But there's an aspect of it that's very surreal and yeah. also the, the reality of it uh, is is really quite far away at the moment. So, yeah, I, I've got that coming up and then hopefully, you know, get onto a new Bad Seeds record or something, um, clear up the year a bit. I, I realised... I was in, on this tour that I, I basically burnt myself out in the last couple of years with the book and I did the record with Marianne and the record Carnage and I had so many projects during lockdown um, and the park and, and I just realised and it rolled into this. I've been on tour for a year and I was like, I think I'm burnt out, you know. <laughs> so so I, I, I need to sort of, I mean, it's a, it's a good problem to have, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm 57, you know, so... It's a good problem to have, but I, I really want to do shows with Dirty Three um, as, as well down the line. We have a new record that we, oh, we haven't really? released yet. Yeah. Wow, when did you record that? Well, we recorded that uh, in 2019 um, after uh, we went into a studio for like four days with no ideas and just laid out this record. And, and um, we got it up ready to go and then the lockdown happened and, and, it, and it felt like it was a squandered opportunity to, to put it out there and not be able to play for for, dirt, for us, you know. Yeah. Um, so we just sort of sat on it. So at the, at the moment, um, hopefully next year we'll, we'll get that out and and try and do a few shows around it or something like that. All going and, and make a new record, I don't know, and maybe when we're dusted and done and dusted and stuff, someone will find that record, you know, in, in an envelope unopened behind my desk. 
and they'll put it out. <laughs> Without your permission. Yeah. Without my permission. But let it be known that you have my permission because it, it is actually, I think, a defining record of, of us. Hello, I'm Warren Ellis. You're listening to the extraordinary, astonishing, ever-changing, revelationary Mojo Record Club with the hottest guys on the planet. Andrew Mayle, John Mulvey, these guys know their shit. So subscribe, keep them on the airwaves, uh, doing this amazing podcast, um, and keep listening to music, because that's the only way that it stays alive. Um, It has all the great stuff, if you like that band. It has the great stuff that was in the earlier records where we didn't really have a clue and we were just just going in and playing and going for it and feeling off each other. Um, And, you know, when I play with those two guys, it's not like anything else. Yeah. I'm trying to remember that I think... I think I may have been at one of your very first London shows. You were supporting another Australian band at what used to be the LA2 underneath the Astoria. And I'm trying to remember the name of the band, but the audience was entirely Australian. It was one of those bands that didn't mean a great deal in the UK. And and, um, it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. It was also the crowd that had no idea what to expect, really, I think, as well. I really wish I'd checked... (laughs) In a good way. That was, right, that, was off, that was often the response. Yeah. <laughs> I remember doing a tour when Beck put Beck. We we played with Beck in '94, with, and John Spencer had come out with Beck, and Beck had had a hit with Loser, and he arrived with a little punk rock band, and, and nobody had any idea, you know, yeah. what 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 was going on with it, and uh, he brought John Spencer out, and and then. We went and did a show with John Spencer and then Beck come up and he goes, hey, if you come to America, you know, come on tour with us. So Beck put out Odelay, it went ballistic. Yeah. And he's like, do you guys come on tour with us? So we opened for Beck for that tour, which was just a series of being pelted with things every night in front of this college. I mean, it was kind of amazing, yeah. you know, like just sitting there playing and I'd be gobbing up on the roof and it'd be falling down on my head and stuff and people just throwing dog biscuits, I remember, <laughs> and, 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 and quarters really hard at us. New Dirty Three album, you heard it here first. <clears throat> yeah, it's a scoop. <laughs> I'd just like to thank you both for having me in because uh, it's a real privilege to be able to sit and talk about record a record that has moved you in, in such a way, and particularly something that's maybe not very well known and stuff like that. But um, you know, to be able to sit and talk about a record that's defined you uh, in such a way is 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 a is a really great thing to do. So thank you. It's been absolutely thank fantastic you. Thank you to have you in, Warren. It's been great. We really enjoyed it. Okay, you have been listening to Warren Ellis, John Mulvey, and myself, Andrew Mayle. And now we'd like to hear from you. If you have any questions, requests for records, or guests you'd like us to have on the show, please get in touch. Send your voice notes and emails to mojoreaders at bowermedia.co.uk. That was the Mojo Record Club. Hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of the tracks we played. Maximum volume yields maximum results. <laughs>